Proverbs 24, verses 1 to 10. says, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Wisdom is too lofty for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Man, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Seeing that uh, Proverbs is written from a father to a son, remember Solomon is the chief author of Proverbs, and he's writing them uh, nearly exclusively to his sons to prepare them to be kings. Um, Because that's the case, uh, and it's also the case that the heavenly father writes to us through Solomon, right? We are, he is our father. And we are his sons, uh, as we've heard before, even in Christ, women are sons of God, right? You receive a full inheritance of sons, your sons in the son. It makes perfect sense that there would be, because it's father to son language, it makes perfect sense that there would be a super abundant focus in the Proverbs on the household. This evening, what I want to do is frame the first 10 verses around verses 3 and 4, right? So a little bit about Proverbs. If you've been uh, with us before, you've heard this. If you haven't, um, about Proverbs, the end of Proverbs 9 is basically uh, the last bit of Proverbs where you can find large sections that obviously go together until you get to basically chapter 30, right? So everything from chapter 10 until around chapter 30 is just like, almost seems like random proverbs thrown together. You even get certain proverbs that are repeated, right? You'll have the same proverb, maybe one or two words has changed. Um, but what I want to do is try to draw, because the Lord doesn't you know, tell us not to do this, I'm going to try and draw verse 3 and 4 basically as a central theme to these first 10 verses. Now this text applies plenty to those who are not young men in the process of building a household. Because you might say, well, pastor... I'm a single woman, and I'm older. My household, as far as I'm going to build it, is already built. Or you might say, I'm young and single, not married. Um, I'm I'm not in a place to build a household. Or you might say, I'm single and open to uh, marriage. And uh, this seems kind of far-fetched and out there for me. But the truth is that all lives, even single lives, are households in some sense. They are buildings for the Lord. And what I'm drawing on there is what the Lord Jesus says in John 14. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, me and my father, Jesus says, will come to him and make our home with him. So you become, as a Christian, if you keep the Lord's word, you become a home individually. 
of the Lord. What a profound concept, right? But because of that imagery in Scripture, we can see that this doesn't just apply to a young man building a house. It applies even to the individual uh, building a life. And everyone, if you're still upright, is building a life. You're either building a physical house with multiple members or you're building a spiritual house with multiple members because the Father and the Son by the Spirit come to dwell with you. The Father and the Son by the Spirit are certainly to be welcomed and expected in both physical houses and individual spiritual houses, right? Okay, so let's jump into the actual text here. Remember, I'm going to frame it around verses 3 and 4, and the particular phrase I have in mind in verse 3 is uh, a building of a house, right? The building of a house and how verses 1 through 10 are going to relate to that. But remember, I'm not just talking about a physical house. I'm talking about also a spiritual house, which you yourself become through obedience to the word of God. So as you are building your house, you will be tempted to be envious of evil men for any number of reasons. Right. So he opens here in verses one and two. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence and their lips talk of troublemaking. I want you to flip to your left in your Bible to Psalm 73, because you might be thinking, hey, I, I'm not tempted to uh, you know, be envious of evil men. I'm not, right? I'm a righteous person. I go to church. I read my Bible. I'm, I'm not tempted by those things. I don't covet what evil men have. But David, or excuse me, Asaph in Psalm 73 actually gives a pretty significantly uh, significant and length Psalm, 28 verses, uh, about this very theme. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to pick a few and then draw your eyes to something in Psalm 73. He says, uh, starting at verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Look at the reason. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why is that? He keeps going. He says, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. And he's just saying that they, all these things happen to them, and this is the case in their life. And it, it appears that there are no consequences, right? If, if they're evil and their life looks like this, but I'm righteous and my life looks like that, which one would I rather have, right? That's the context of Psalm 73. But then he says in uh, verse 16 of Psalm 73, I'm just kind of skipping over there, but he says, when I thought about how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. Isn't that a powerful image? I thought about how to understand the prosperity of the wicked. I thought about how to understand why it, it seems that non-Christian lives can be easier than Christian lives until I went into the sanctuary of God. That is to say, until I went and worshiped the Lord. And then I understood right, that, that understanding that comes when you gather with God's people. So flip back over to Proverbs 24, 
right? You've got this idea even in Psalm 73, and it may sound ridiculous, but none of the Lord's warnings can be described as such. God says, do not be envious of evil men because you will be tempted to be envious of evil men. And maybe this will be especially surprising for those of you who are younger and not yet married, especially if you're godly. You will likely do without a lot of things that those who are ungodly just seem to have. It's just the case. The Lord tells us not to be drawn to envy of those who are evil for a particular reason in this proverb. Because, you know, he doesn't just say, don't be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. He, he doesn't stop there. He gives you a reason. Uh, in a couple of other proverbs, he, he points to the fact of uh, destruction will come upon them. Right? But in this proverb, he gives a more uh, immediate application, immediate reason. It is because their hearts study destruction and their lips talk of mischief. Now, what does that mean? Simplified. It means don't envy them because you see what they're like. You see their character. Who actually wants to be like that person? Do you really want to be like that? A further implication, the ungodliness of their character is probably what helped them accumulate what they have. Right? We don't live in a world where doing the right thing always gets you ahead. We just don't. This isn't a condemnation of having nice things, right? It's no sin to want nice things. But it is a condemnation of not caring how you get those things. And desiring to have them so much that you will become like those who are evil in order to have them. Those of you who are older uh, know this. Um, and those of you who are younger are still beginning to understand this. But you are gradually developing a vision or putting into practice a vision of what you want your life to look like. The question is, what happens when it doesn't go how you want it to look? Do you behave like Psalm 73? Right? Do you envy evil men because maybe they have what you wanted? Or do you trust in the Lord? And we'll get to, to that even more in just a moment. Um, their character, right? You're supposed to see what these people are like. Their character is to be off-putting to you regardless of their possessions. The proverb might as well say, who cares what they have? Look at what they are like. Do you really want to envy them? And that is not the way to build a home. Verse 3 tells us a home is built by wisdom. Remember a home, meaning an actual home with a family inside or just an individual building one's life. A home is built by wisdom. And then it is established after being built through understanding. Notice the choice of words here. At the first part of verse 3, you have through wisdom. In the middle of verse 3, you have by understanding. And then in the beginning of verse 4, you have by knowledge. So wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Wisdom is for building. Understanding is for establishing. That is to say, solidifying the house for the future. It's not much to say that you can build a house if it won't stay up. Right? Understanding comes for that. Wisdom is for creation, we might say. Uh, you could draw from Proverbs 8 on that, how wisdom relates to uh, creation. But understanding is for protection, for care, and for nurture once the house has been built. And you won't build a house worth building through the envy of evil men. Some adults, you could probably bear witness to this. I know that there are certain situations in my life where I could where I desired uh, something that I knew was not good for me, but just because I, in my sinful flesh, had coveted something that evil men had had. 
and then I get it. Doesn't satisfy. There's no joy, right? No house worth having is built through envying evil men or through being evil in yourself. It might be built. You might get it, but it will not be established. It will be perpetually in flux. The Lord even tells you in verse 4 how to fill your home with riches. Again, showing that there is nothing inherently evil about riches, but the way it's done is through knowledge. I love the way the uh, King James says it here in verse 4. It says, By knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. The chambers of a household. Just a wonderful choice of words there. The New King James says the rooms are filled. That's kind of boring. Chambers sounds a lot cooler, but make it that what you will. Um, so let me give you a quote here from Matthew Henry talking on these, these verses. He says, We are tempted to envy those that grow rich, and raise their estates and families by such unjust courses as our consciences will by no means suffer or permit us to use. So he's saying that we're tempted to, tempted, <laughs> tempted to envy those that grow rich and raise up things, but we know that our conscience would not let us do what they've done to get them. But to set aside that temptation, Solomon here shows that a man with prudent management may raise his estate and family by lawful and honest means with a good conscience and a good name and the blessing of God upon his industry. And if the other be raised a little sooner, yet these will last a great deal longer. Did you catch that at the very end? Even if the evil man gets what he's working after sooner than you, yours will last longer because you've done it in righteousness. He says further on this, he says, we must govern ourselves in everything by the rules of religion first and then of discretion. That's another way of saying seek first the kingdom of God. Some that are truly pious or godly do not thrive in the world because they lack prudence. You ever met a really godly person that is just really dumb when it comes to decisions in the world? That's what he's talking about. And some that are prudent enough Yet they do not prosper because they lean to their own understanding and do not acknowledge God in their ways. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. Therefore, both must go together to complete a wise man. Because if you turn away from living a godly life in order to be like this prudent evil man, you're losing, is the point that Solomon is making. Only the man who is both godly and prudent... And not even just godly, but godly and prudent, because that's what a lot of the Proverbs is, is teaching you how to live, not just make godly decisions, but how to make uh, decisions where the Bible doesn't speak so directly. It says, both must go together to complete a wise man. Henry says uh, one more thing here. This is my last, yes, my last quote for a little bit. He says, men may by unrighteous practices build their houses, but they cannot establish them. For the foundation is rotten, whereas what is honestly gotten will wear like steel and be an inheritance to children's children. Now, when you get to verse 6, it could be that Solomon, I got some of my tooth there, <clears throat> it could be that Solomon in verse 6 is expanding out to other types of work for kings, right? So he's talking about building a house in verse 3 and 4. And then 5 and 6, right, or verse 5, is kind of a general statement. A wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. But then he starts talking about war. 
in verse 6, right? For by wise counsel you will wage your own war. So kings take their people to war, right? Um, they have wars to wage, especially in those days of past. He lets his sons know that wars are not to be waged well by envying the evil, but by seeking a multitude of counselors. Let me tell you this. This is something that I have run up into uh, even in my very short time in pastoral ministry, that men, especially who make rash decisions, do not use counselors. They just choose on their own. They just go on a whim. Uh, men who lead their homes might be godly and good men, but they tend not to have counselors, and they choose uh, foolish things because of that. The Bible warns us about this. By wise counsel, you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors, there is... Safety. Now, this can very obviously be applied to the wars we have to wage at home as well. Because you have to do that, don't you, parents? You wage wars at home all the time, right? Um, there are wars that you fight on things that are coming from without your home. And there are wars that you have to fight when you bring order back to a disrupted home. And this is done by wise counsel, multiple of them. And it's through this that houses are built and wars are fought. You see, the wisdom that you'll need to build a home and fight your wars is too high for a fool, verse 7 says. Wisdom is too lofty. It's too high up for a fool. So the implication is don't consult him either. If we don't see this today, right? Those who have run our land, our churches, and our families are those whom we continue to go to for guidance. That is to say, the people who have driven our society and our churches and our families into the dirt are those whom we continue to look to for insight. We think a broken system or broken people are going to help us get out, and it's just not the case. It's ignoring things like the Proverbs. They don't know how to build anything. Look at the state of things. You're going to have to go back to before them In order to find the help you need. If they devise to do evil, the text says that they are mischievous. You ever meet somebody that uh, they just have a hard time calling somebody a bad person? They're just so nice when they look at other people. He's he's a good boy. He's just made some bad decisions. The Bible says if someone is plotting to do evil, they are a schemer or mischievous. Right? Let it be what it is. Use the wisdom that God has given you to discern these things. If they devise to do evil, then they are mischievous or they're a schemer. Why in the world would you ask them what to do? An untrustworthy person is untrustworthy. It's not rocket science. Imagine if they're counseling you on building a home or going to war. Do you want an untrustworthy contractor? Probably not, right? You don't want somebody who you can't trust telling you how to build an actual home. How much more uh, the home of your life, right? Even the thoughts of this man uh, of foolishness are sinful. That's, to me, that's what is, he's kind of jumping to uh, in verse 9. He says the, devi- the devising of foolishness. So not just the plotting of this evil man, but even the devising of foolishness, right? Even the, the meditation on foolishness about how you might accomplish it he says, is sin. And the scoffer is an abomination to men. Be careful who you go to for guidance. You'll even be tempted to those who are 
an abomination to men. Again, why? Well, you could see Psalm 73. Remember, every time you see the word abomination in Scripture, we're not just talking about sin in general. We're talking about great, great wickedness. God uses that word to apply to things like homosexuality, child sacrifice, and such. He calls those things abomination. Don't we see that all around us? So you can know that those who hate the truth will not be able to help you as much as those who love the truth. Notice I didn't say it doesn't mean that they can, can't help you at all, but the fullness of counsel, the help that God has for his people, is ultimately going to be found in those who have his spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit keeps us from being dominated, not tempted. The Holy Spirit doesn't keep us from being tempted. The Holy Spirit keeps us from being dominated by the vices mentioned throughout this text. You see, this is just the person who, the person who, who gives in to these things. It's just a person who doesn't know how to be satisfied. A person that doesn't know how to trust in God's providence for what the Lord has provided for them. So he turns and he envies evil men, and he's going to make up his own plan because God's plan is not good. Now, verse 10 is a, is a heck of a way to close this section, right? Uh, you might think if it was written in the New Testament, it would say, if you faint in the day of adversity, take heart, there's a Savior, right? <laughs> but that's just not how Proverbs is written. And I don't mean to say that that makes it uh, less valuable for us. Right? If you faint in the day of adversity, the Bible says your strength is small, right? It means stand up straight. Make the right choice. You will need great strength. I say, oh, Yeah. Right, amen. You will need great strength because the day of adversity in building a home or fighting a war is coming. And if your strength is small, you will faint. You will get in. You will be envious of evil men and all these other things that we have worked through. I'm going to close with a quote here from Matthew Henry. And uh, any comments or questions you have, please feel free uh, to do them, uh, to offer them. He says, in the day of adversity, we are apt or prone to faint, to droop, and to be discouraged, to desist from our work, and to despair of relief. Our spirits sink, and our hands hang low, and our knees grow feeble, and we become unfit for anything. And often those that are most cheerful when they are well droop most, and are most dejected when anything ails them, right? You know those people that only know how to be high and low is what he's talking about. It says this is an evidence that when we faint, our strength is small and is a means of weakening it even more. He says it is a sign that you are not a man of any resolution, any firmness of thought, any consideration, or any faith because faith is the strength of a soul if you can't bear up under an afflictive change of your condition. He says some are so feeble that they can bear nothing. He cites Job 5. He says if a, if a trouble does but touch them, they give in. If it does but threaten them, some even faint immediately and are ready to give up all for gone. And by this means, they render themselves unfit to grapple with their trouble and unable to help themselves. He says at last, be of good courage, therefore, and God shall strengthen your hearts. You might say, how do I get this courage? How do I get this strength? 
the two passages that came to mind as I was finishing my notes on this uh, were Psalm 1 and Joshua 1. Psalm 1 and Joshua 1, I'm just going to look at Psalm 1 because it's closer. How do we stand in the day of adversity? How do we not faint when adversity comes? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. So where does it come from? The law of the Lord. That is to say, his word. This man shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly, those whom you're tempted to envy, they are not so, but are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly will not stand, but the godly will in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And I am going to read a little bit from Joshua 1, because there's a line in there that I want to draw your attention to. In Joshua 1, that uh, coffee cup verse, but a glorious one nonetheless. Um, starting at verse 6. Uh, nope, nope, I'm going to go up a little bit. Uh, let's start at verse 5. Remember, Moses uh, spoke to Joshua these words as Joshua was preparing for his own war, right? He was preparing to go make war in the, the Holy Land. It says, uh, verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their, forefa- their fathers to give you, to give them. Excuse me. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. In order that you may prosper wherever you go, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, so that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. Do not grow faint, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice he promised that no one would stand before him, that he would uh, prosper in all that he would do if he meditated on the law, the word of the Lord, day and night in order to know how to obey it. How do we get this strength that Proverbs 24 warns us that if we don't have, our strength is small. We get it by meditating, reading and studying the word of God. And I say to you that the same thing that Matthew Henry says, to be of good courage, notice the word is courage. Right, Not simply be of good faith, because anybody can say they believe these things in a, some kind of mental assent. But courage is that internal strength that enables you to act when the moment finally comes. Right? Be of good courage, and God shall strengthen you all the more. Amen. Any uh, closing thoughts, questions, comments? <clears throat> Going once? Okay.
Go ahead. Yeah, and you remind me of Jesus' line about no man being fit for the kingdom when he puts his hand to the plow and then he turns back. Right? You know, that's a, an example of fainting in the day of adversity. Um, I'm thinking about as well how, like, the, the practical examples, especially when raising children, because um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in some way, the more time you're willing to devote as parents to the church, the more time you're willing to devote to spiritual things, to setting Sunday aside and all those things, what you're doing is forfeiting time that you had to make more money. Or you're forfeiting time for worldly pleasures. Right? And praise the Lord that you are. But our children are going to be tempted, just like we were tempted when we were younger, if we were raised in the church, to maybe, just maybe wish that mommy and daddy would do Sundays a little different. If they did, maybe I'd have this. Or maybe mom and daddy would do nighttime a little differently or Wednesdays or whatever the case may be. But we have to guard against those things right? in our own hearts and especially in the hearts of our children and teach them. Um, I mean, like, kind of like this proverb says, te- uh, teach them the long view. Right? Teach them to look at things. It's hard enough for us in our 30s uh, to, to see the end. Right? Ms. Lois can tell you about the need to adopt the long view and be working patiently, uh, but it's even harder for our children to see it. We have to encourage them uh, and train them to see that uh, the Lord is leading us to do these things, and whatever we lose for the sake of Christ, as Paul would say, we count as gain, right? Because it's so much better to serve the Lord than anything. Any other thoughts, questions? Going once. It's true. I mean, my oldest is 10, and I, I mean, I, it freaks me out to even say that out loud. I can remember him being born. Yeah. I can remember when Sam was born. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. All right. <clears throat> Do what? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you.